0: Live from Barrelhaven and Hexwood, this is Derailed Trains of Thought. Well, welcome folks to episode 118 of Derailed Trains of Thought, your premier podcast for the creator and the consumer, Hello, Nick. Hello, Tim. We are in another colorful, cartoony tavern. This We've time. been to a lot of these, it seems like. Well, yeah. Well, a lot of taverns, not yeah, not uh, cartoony ones. Not cartoony ones. No. Yeah, not not as much. There's some interesting white. We were kind of cartoony creatures. last episode. True. It was kind of a theme for yeah. Uh, lately anyway But it seems to be a very raucous place I hear there's a there's a cow race of some sort going on uh, outside Hey, well, may I'll go gamble on it uh, Maybe, uh, be careful You don't Make anyone mad? Make anyone mad or <laughs> lose our bus fare out of here Yeah, that. that's true But it's a quaint little place But uh, we do have our computer It's just hooked up to uh, Through the magic of podcasting We have our special guest today Woo-hoo. And uh, he's coming to us from the rustic location, Hexwood His name is Nate Chen Hello, Nate Hey, Tim, how you doing? I'm doing okay. How are you doing over there in Hexwood? Well, uh, I
1: just barely lost, avoided losing my shirt to uh, the mine foreman around here. It's uh, it's kind of raucous. There are some professional company people who keep coming up and accosting me, but uh, otherwise, it's a nice place.
0: Cool, cool. Uh, I'm sure we'll hear some more about it as we launch into uh, more of this episode. But so, Nate, you and I, we really got to know each other back in 2019 when we did uh, All for One production, uh, Sherlock Holmes in the first Baker Street Irregular. You got to play Mr. Holmes himself. I was Inspector Lestrade and as well as a couple other characters. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And but tell us a little bit more about yourself.
1: Sure. Uh well I studied uh professional communication at uh Taylor University, Fort Wayne branch. I've been a writer pretty much ever since then. Like I have I don't have a lot published, unfortunately, uh, but I have a blog that I've run for the last I want to say eight years now. Um That's impressive. Thank you. Yeah, I uh I'm I'm pretty proud of having been able to keep it updated regularly with a, a couple of missed spots for, you know, illness or stuff like that for the last eight years. So I, I can't say it's always been coherent or the content has always <laughs> been good, but it's been there. <laughs> Consistency counts. Right. And I learned a lot doing it, like uh, the importance of keeping your nose to the grindstone and just just writing stuff is, is a big part of it.
0: And you've done a mixture of uh, like columns or blog posts, and you've been you've done storytelling through there, right?
1: That's correct, yes. At this point, I think I've done three novellas, half a dozen short stories, and a couple of novels that I posted on there.
0: Nice. Very cool. And I know you've been heavily involved with uh, All for One, the theater ministry there in Fort Wayne.
1: That's correct, yeah. Um, it's interesting, because I started with All for One about the same time I started working on my blog. <laughs> so yeah, I, I think I've been doing that for about eight years, too. Um, and I've had uh, a number of roles with them over the years, most of them on the smaller side, but uh, a couple of bigger roles, like uh, the Sherlock Holmes role. And also, um, I got to star in the world premiere of a play called Bentley, which was uh, a lot of
0: fun to do as well. Cool, cool. Were you the title character in that? Or were you were the butler? I, I don't think I saw Bentley, but I remember hearing a lot about it. Yes, I was, the, the title character is the butler. Yeah, it's it's an interesting... Oh, okay. <laughs> so. Obvious question here, and I I apologize, it's kind of cliche, but did you do it? No, that's one of the plot twists. The butler didn't do it. <laughs> okay, <laughs> nice, nice, fun stuff. Okay, well, the reason we wanted to have you on here is you were working on a project along with well everything else you do, but even during uh, during Sherlock, that I was very intrigued by, and that inspired me to say, hey, when you're ready to talk about this, let's do let's uh, let's have you on the podcast. So we're going to really dive into that in our next segment, which is Story School. any new listeners out there story school is kind of the the heart of our podcasts the the meat of it uh pick the your heart metaphor and meat oh yummy yeah exactly <laughs> where we dissect something about storytelling it could be all manner of things sometimes we go very philosophical sometimes practical sometimes practical we lean in on the creator side of things and sometimes we hone in on a very specific medium and today we wanted to talk about indie comics The project that Nate was working on, and I guess you're getting near the completion of, is your own indie comic. Is that right, Nate?
1: That's right, yes.
0: And can you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Sure. Uh, It's called Hexwood, Dust and Ashes. Um, It is a simple tale of magic and vengeance sent in the Colombian West. Genre-wise, it is a weird Western, which means it is um, a story that combines the traditional Western with either elements of fantasy or elements of horror, or in some cases, both. In my case, it's it's pretty much just fantasy. I'm not much of a horror connoisseur, and I wouldn't trust myself to write it well on its own, much less mashing it up with another genre. (laughs) Uh, So the story kind of centers on a small mining town called Hexwood, it starts with a dead body, like all the best stories do, and um, from there the sheriff has to figure out why one of the local miners has been killed. Is it a claim jumper? Is it just bandits? Is there more at work? And of, of course, it's the best answer, which is that there's more at work. <laughs> but uh, there's also train robbers and, and bandits, and the leader of the notorious Red Band Gang, Frank Dugan, uh, who is wanted for murder, robbery, and consorting with otherworldly forces. So, it's got a lot of different things going on, but at its heart, this first installment is uh, just a sheriff trying to track down some murderers and bring them to justice.
0: Cool, cool. So, you said you went to Taylor Fort Wayne for, was it the professional writing major or more broadly communication? Uh,
1: it, was, it was professional writing, yeah.
0: Okay. So, what first drew you into uh, creating an indie comic?
1: Well, I have been drawing comics. I think since I was about six or seven, uh, whenever it was, I first saw saw Star Trek. Uh, was when I wanted <laughs> to start drawing <laughs> drawing comics, and uh, it was not something I thought a whole lot about as as something to do, you know, with my life. It was just something I did while I was in church, trying, you know, not to trying to pay attention during the sermons or um, you know stuff like that. I would just sit there and I would, I would doodle pictures and sometimes I would add words to them. And of course, uh, I was fortunate enough to be roughly the age of Calvin from Calvin and Hobbes while it was running in the newspapers. So I was exposed very early to the work of Bill Waterman, who is just a fantastic illustrator with a great sense of, of fun and uh, how he illustrates. I think that's,
0: is that Watterson?
1: Watterson? Yeah, that's correct. But I didn't, I didn't really think about doing a comic probably until I was actually working on my writing degree. Again, I was, I was doodling a lot in the margins of my notes while I was in school. And of course, you know, you're doing all this writing for professional writing. Um, and I started thinking about doing a comic then. And I, I already had kind of a set of characters who were, who were cropping up in drawings a lot. And like every naive illustrator who wants to tell a story, I was like, "Oh, I'll just, I'll just shove them all in a story together." Well, that that <laughs> never worked out. Uh, some people make it work almost intelligibly, but I eventually, well, I I have kept some of those characters, and they may show up in stories at some point. Um, in fact, one of them is in Hexwood, but a lot of the old stories that I was trying to tell with them have kind of been put on a back burner until some point where I can pare them down a size and make something coherent out of them.
2: I guess that leads me to the question of, so what was the, I guess, direct inspiration for Hexwood? You've been drawing these comics, and then now you have this product you're working on. Where did this idea come from?
1: Okay, uh, are either of you familiar with Magic the Gathering? Yes, in name at least. Okay, (laughs) I played some Magic when I was in college, and then uh, for a couple years after I graduated, and then... It got kind of expensive as a hobby, and (laughs) uh, there was just not as many people in my circle of friends who played it anymore. So I, I kind of gave up playing Magic, but I followed the design and creation of Magic quite avidly, in no small part, because Mark Rosewater, who is the chief designer, just publishes basically his design process through every iteration of the game. And it's really fascinating stuff to read, especially because Mark Rosewater has a degree in creative writing. Uh, In fact, he has writing credits on the sitcom Roseanne. Uh, So he is not the typical game designer who is a math major. Um, It's interesting. He's like he's this very verbal person working with all of these people with numbers in their heads. Um, So that's one (laughs) thing that comes up a lot in his talking about it. He thinks a lot about design philosophy and stuff like that. Um, he uses the word grok a lot, which I know you're familiar with. He's very, <laughs> yes. he's very concerned with the grokability of magic as a game. So it's very fascinating to read all these insights. And periodically when the game is looking for new designers, they run this thing they call the Great Designer Search, which is uh, a reality, not quite a TV show because it's, it's all done in writing, but where they, t- they bring in game designers and they put them through their paces. All of this is a long way to set up the fact that during the second great designer search, Magic was trying to integrate their world building more with their, their game design. And every designer also had to build a world. And one of the game designers built this world where all of the conflict was around a gold rush, but instead of gold, it was Magic Rocks in the ground. <laughs> and nice. I, I got really interested in that idea. And I kind of took that Because that designer, unfortunately, got knocked out very early in the contest. The world never got developed a whole lot. And while I was at work, my brain would be picking over um, these little ideas he set up of the the world and and how I would implement them if I was telling a story there. Um, And eventually, it distilled into the idea that there, there would be people fighting over a resource called sulfurite. And that remains in many ways, at the heart of the story of Hexwood. Everybody uses sulfurite weapons. They don't have guns. They have swords with sulfurite embedded in them, and they can shoot bursts of fire at each other. So that's how they duel. Instead of having, you know, quick-draw battles, there are sword duels where um, they also try and burn each other to death. And from there, I started to uh, slot in other ideas. As I said, you know, there have been concepts and ideas for stories uh, for comics bouncing around in the back of my head for years. And I started to, to roll in um, some other ideas. There's a, there's a whole system for basic elemental magic that just sort of fit really nicely in with the idea that, you know, you have all these people running around shooting fire at each other. Um, So fire became a very important part of their society. I found myself digging in somewhat into the lore of Dark Souls for inspiration because I know fire is very important in, in those video games. But ultimately, when it came time to actually put characters to page and build the conflict and characters and story, the other big inspiration for me was actually some historical books I had read about conflicts between cowboys that were born out of the american civil war like there were there were whole ranches that seemed to fall on one side or the other of the civil war and they they would have all of these veterans of the civil war there and they would fight with each other on on the plains and that was Mm. for the characters that was the inspiration like what if there was you know a civil war in this alternate world where they have magic rocks and these people who who are removed from the war now, have to almost refight it while trying to make a new home out you know, in the unsettled frontier. So that is the the conflict of Hexwood.
0: Nice. Pulling from like real life history and, and uh, a card game and yeah, nice blending of stuff. I approve. <laughs> cool stuff. Well, I'm going to pose you a question, uh, not specifically about Hexwood, although we'll come back around to that. I'm going to kind of borrow a question that when we we actually interviewed Lauren Nichols uh, a while back, uh, we were talking about theater. But I'm going to I'm going to pose you a question about comics, because we live in a very entertainment, saturated culture where there's just tons of options. But what do you think that comics offered to an audience? And we can hone in on indie comics in a minute. Uh, But what do you think comics offered to an audience that uh, other mediums don't or can't as well?
1: Well, there are. A bunch of different things for the audience in particular uh, the strongest thing is comics and especially indie comics comics in general but the independent ones in particular uh, can give you a very strong sense of a single creative vision like a tv show or even a movie has hundreds of creative visions at work in it You know, three or four script writers, uh, a director, all of the camera directors, uh, I I forget what, cinematographer, that's the word, and the costume designers and, you know, all kinds of different people are are bringing their creative vision to that. With a comic, even one made by a a big group like Marvel or a big manga house like um, Sayusha, there's generally only a writer, an artist, an editor. And two or three people that fill support roles like a colorist or an inker or um, in the manga world more generally an assistant who kind of facilitates for, for uh, the writer and or the artist. So you're, you're really getting a very distilled creative vision. You're getting something that is very rich with whatever thematic or story elements the author and artist want to put in there. And that can be either good or bad, depending on your point of view.
0: Depending on who the creator is.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Well, one of the interesting things about comics is people tend to either really strongly resonate with them or not care about them at all. And I think part of that is because so much of the individual creator is coming through. You know, you really click with some people and other people, you just don't. And I think that's something that comes through in comics. They also present a lot of interesting things. Narratively, which it's kind of difficult to break down just talking about it. You almost kind of have to lay out a comic page and go through it panel by panel and say they're doing all this different stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I do geek out a lot about that. There's like leading the eye. Um, there's a, a whole different kind of art form to timing in panels as opposed to in animation or in film that I almost find I appreciate more. That is kind of an element of taste, admittedly. Um, But if that's what you want, you're not going to find it anywhere outside of comics.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I remember back when I was a teens librarian, we had kind of one of our little continuing education days at the main branch. And I went to one class thing that was about uh, comics and graphic novels. And one of the things the librarian was talking about is, you know, sometimes comics get looked on as kind of this lower form of like, okay, well, your kids, the kids aren't really reading. They're just looking at pictures. But she brought out how there is a certain amount of literacy and it actually takes, you know, sometimes modern comics pages can be quite elaborately organized between like word bubbles and following the action from, from one panel to another. It's, it's a certain mind space you have to get into sometimes It's a whole different language, I guess, if you can use that. Yeah. Yes, yeah. So, yeah, yeah, no that that, that makes sense. And yeah, I've definitely seen some manga, for example, which is the Japanese form of comics. I find very hard to follow because they do lots of like I don't know, just sometimes the way they animate the the action lines or something. It's just like, wait, what's going on? What's this character doing right now? Or how do we get from this to
2: another? It's interesting. Comics have its own shorthand, just like film does. And you got, you know, and I'm sure manga... I have not read much manga, but I'm sure the, the shorthand is even different than American.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah, it is. I actually saw a fascinating breakdown of it in a Twitter thread where a person went through the way manga does panel layouts, because in... English comics, panel layouts is very, very freeform, uh, especially comics made in the last decade or so. Mm -hmm. Um, And you can do some really elaborate stuff, whereas a Japanese reader will pick that up and they'll find it utterly unintelligible because for the last 20 or 30 years in Japan, there have been kind of unwritten code about how panels should be laid out to lead the eye of the reader. It's not so much the composition in each panel that that, leads the eye, which is the way it's done in Western comics. It's the actual gutters between the panels and the way they're arrayed naturally read the eye once you get used to it. Um, And it's, it's fascinating to see like these comic panels and these manga panels lined up side to side and just there's clearly a language at work in each of them, but it's totally different.
0: Yeah. That's fascinating. I mean that yeah, the, the panel layout is distinct and like you said, how sometimes one artist's voice will, will work with you and another one's won't. Like there definitely been some manga that like, oh I can I could totally follow this one. Whereas this other one, like I oh, have yeah, this is so weird. I, I don't know what I'm looking at. Yeah. And honestly, that's the same with Western artists. Like in terms of like DC, I love. I know uh, Jim Lee is an artist I really really like. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's there are some other ones I look at. And it's like ah, it looks really sloppy. <laughs> uh, just, that doesn't work for me. But okay, so let's talk a little bit more about. So someone who doesn't know much about comics, they start exploring. Suddenly they realize, wow, this is a huge, much bigger arena than I would have thought. And so they may be more likely to like hone in on. The stuff they know, like the Marvel, the DC, that that kind of stuff. So what would you say to someone who doesn't know much about indie comics? What would you say that's something that indie comics can provide that you you couldn't find elsewhere?
1: Uh, sure, a bunch of things. Um, the first one, and probably the biggest one, is stories about something other than superheroes. <laughs> like, <laughs> Fair enough. And I'm not throwing shade on, on superheroes. In fact, one of my back burner projects is called Blue Collar Heroes, and it's kind of a superhero book. But in Marvel and DC, that's all there is. That's the only genre there is right now. And in the past, comics used to be incredibly diverse. There were like romance comics, there were horror comics, there were crime thriller comics, and they're they're all gone from uh, mainstream publishing now. But you can find a very broad array of different kinds of comics in the uh, independent sphere. Like I read, um, I recently read a comic called Foreign Agent, which is just a thriller about two soldiers who are stranded behind enemy lines and take shelter. Uh, it's the middle of winter. They take shelter in this house, and there's uh, a local family there, and they don't speak the same language. They speak two different languages. And so it's the suspense story where they don't understand each other, and they have to like draw pictures in this notebook to make themselves understand each other. And it's kind of simple. It's kind of straightforward. But it's, it's not a story you would get in Marvel or DC. Hmm. So th- one of the big things is the diversity of the kinds of stories. And another is there's a lot less baggage to it. Right now, comic publishers want everything connect to everything else. They want it to be like <laughs> the MCU. Um, they want you to be totally invested in every ongoing storyline and buy, you know, 30 comic books a month and... Uh-huh. Who can keep up with it? Not very many people, especially once they're done with college and they don't have nearly as much free time on their hands, so.
0: Yeah, it makes sense.
2: As you're talking about the, the wide range of um, of independent comics, My, it just reminded me that because I have three kids, an 11-year-old, a 9-year-old, and a 5-year-old, and they, they bring them all kinds of like graphic novels like Bird and Squirrel, and things, you know, all kinds of realms of stuff now, even in the younger ages, which I don't think existed when I was, growing up it was X-Men, I mean, that was, I mean, that's what it was, Uh. well, I mean, if someone wanted to in on indie comics, what would you, some recommendations you might have for them, like, they're like, okay, I want to try this thing, what would be, like, some possible starting points, obviously they're all, you know, might, may or may not appeal to different people, but what would you recommend? Right. Well, part of it would depend on what kind of story
1: they're looking for and how long they're willing to wait for it to develop. And what I mean by that is some great indie comics that exist now started kind of rocky because they were, like I said, it was an illustrator with a bunch of characters who's like, oh, let's let's just cram them all into a story. So, and it would depend on what kind of genre of story they wanted to. Right now, the big clearinghouse for indie comics is Webtoons. And if you're not familiar with Webtoons, it is primarily a phone app, although you can access it on your computer browser as well. It's free for starters, so that's a that's a great price point. <laughs> and it presents you with a, a bunch of different kinds of independent comics Some of them created here in the U.S. and some of them, a lot of them created in Korea, largely because the company that created Webtoons is Korean and they've only recently expanded to the U.S. Webtoons offers you a lot of generic action comics, which is which is fine if that's what you like. But you may feel after you've read a few of them that you you are reading the same thing over and over again. There's some romance comics there, uh, which vary in quality, largely depending on the author, uh, a lot like most romance stories do. If you like a romantic comedy with supernatural elements, I do recommend Love Advice from the Great Duke of Hell, which is hilarious.
2: <laughs> Great title.
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a story about a a kid with no social skills. Uh, But who is a master of magic? So he summons a demon lord to advise him on how to hit on
0: a girl, and it's uh, (laughs) it's top shelf. So webtoons
1: is is a decent starting point.
0: I have to admit, my sisters have tried to get me into webtoons many times, and I'm like, I'm sure it's great, but I'm a little scared that many comics just like on my phone. (laughs) Yeah, I'm afraid I'm gonna get sucked into
1: it. There is that danger, no doubt. And and some of the longer running stuff that they've they've translated from the Korean has like thousands of chapters. You know. Oh my. You have to think before committing to something like that. Um, (laughs) So, yeah, I don't blame you at all. Another good free route is uh, the generic webcomic, which existed before Webtoons. But most of those are hosted on their own websites, Mm -hmm. and they can be a pain to track down. Um, It can be a pain to find something that uh, you can read in public. Some webcomics will start off seeming quite innocent, and they can go places you were not expecting. (laughs) Oh, dear. Two that I can recommend that are pretty safe reading would be Sluggy Freelance, which is one of those that gets off to a very rough start, but it's been running for more than 25 years, I think, at this point. Wow. Um, So there's a lot of story there to dig into. It's pretty consistent in its world building and writing, but it is... If Whedon-esque type of stuff with, you know, that kind of slapsticky dialogue with lots of uh kind of irreverent quips is not your thing, maybe Sluggy Freelance isn't for you. <laughs> and on the other side of the coin, Girl Genius is a comic that was started by actual full-time professional comic pros who who wanted to go independent. And it became a webcomic kind of along the way. Like they started off publishing it through a small publishing house And then when they started to see the potential of the internet uh, as a way to distribute comics, they put it online. And that is a, a steampunk adventure fantasy romance story. The world building is rock solid. The writing is very consistent and it gets off to a good start and it just keeps building. I think Girl Genius has been around for almost 20 years now and it has maintained a consistently high level of quality.
0: Cool. You know, it's funny. I actually got a bookmark for Girl Genius. I was given at like a con a, f- a few years ago, and I was like, oh, maybe I should check this out, but I don't know. I'm not familiar with it. So I'm glad to hear, get a recommendation for it. Man, I feel like
2: a, a part of me just really wants to dive into this world now, and the other part of me is like, I don't know if I can do that right now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's well, exciting, though.
1: Yeah, Girl Genius is, it's not as long as it seems, but there is a fair amount there. They only do three pages a week, which is a lot slower than... Um, something like Sluggy Freelance was, especially in its early days, and they still write it as if it was a traditional comic book. So there will be like two-page spreads that are just setting up a scene, or uh, there will be a one-page recap of the previous volume. Uh, some of those are quite funny, but yeah, it's uh, if there's one web comic I recommend people read, it's usually Girl Genius because it's extremely high quality and it's been extremely consistent over the years.
0: Cool, you know it's interesting when we were planning to talk about indie comics. For some reason, web comics just kind of slipped my mind. I guess because I tended to associate them as kind of their own thing. But I mean, the internet is where we all live a lot of times, right? So, like, yeah, it it totally qualifies as indie comics for sure.
1: Yeah, uh, ten years ago, I I would agree with I would have agreed with you and said, yeah, they're they're two different things. But these days, especially, they are becoming very hard to tell apart. Because a lot of web comics I don't follow as many web comics as I used to in the past, but a lot of web comics now, when they release their collected volumes, they will run a Kickstarter for them, and that's how mm-hmm. a lot of independent comics now are getting funded. So speaking of Kickstarters,, yeah. um, as, we, as we move from the free stuff to the stuff that will you know kind of put some skin in the game, um, there's a small independent com- comic publisher by the name of Alterna Comics. They print all of their comics on newsprint. As opposed to the higher quality paper, uh, Marvel or DC or Image use, okay. and that lets them sell comics pretty cheaply. I have read three alternate titles so far, and they have all been pretty good. Uh, they have some good quality control there, and you can get them fairly cheaply off of their website. So the average issue is two dollars, I believe, as opposed to the four or five the average issue of a mainstream comic will mm-hmm. cost you. And again, they have a broad diversity of uh, genres. They have a fascinating historical comic series called Tinseltown, which is set in early Hollywood. They have a bunch of sci-fi stuff. Exilium is a good one. Zero Jumper is another good one that I've read. Um, and they also have some some like noir comics that look interesting that I've never read. They also have a lot of horror comics, which I've also never read because again, that's that's not my genre. Yeah and they run a lot of kickstarters they call them catch up kickstarters um so they they'll basically fund reprintings of their comics by running a kickstarter and giving people chances to like buy into and and they'll get you know so many back issues of their choice from the run or something like that hmm. so that's uh that's kind of the alterna business model uh, another good thing about them is they they tend to just do limited runs uh, by which i mean um, most of their comics are four to eight issues, so you're not buying into something that you have to, you know, follow for three years to get the whole story, um, okay. which is a pitfall of mainstream comics. So yeah, Alterna really great company, and they they really do try and bring value to their customer for the dollar, which is nice to see because like five or six bucks for a twenty page comic which is what you will pay for something from marvel or image these days is is a lot to ask sometimes Mm -hmm. so yeah they have a good price point um and that's one of their big selling points now there are other crowdfunded comics out there of course and all those are are independent comics there are a lot of pitfalls with uh buying into those they may not be fulfilled they may not be what you expected I have heard of crowdfunds where like the artist just polishes the pages they're using for promo and then like the the rest of the comic is not nearly as good in terms of illustration. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. But I can speak to the quality of a couple of people who do um, crowdfunding comics.
0: You talked a lot about uh, Kickstarter, crowdfunding places between that and Webtoons. Are those kind of the primary locations for indie comics? Do they have to be like really successful before they show up in comic book shops?
1: Uh, unfortunately, they kind of do. And the reason for that is, uh, I don't know how much you know about the comic business, but the the short reason for that is Diamond Distribution, which is, until very recently, they've pretty much had a monopoly on the comic book market. Most comic shops buy their comics exclusively through Diamond. And you basically need a publisher to get into the Diamond catalog, to get your book listed. Um, You can't just do an independent print run and then, you know, take it around to comic shops and try and get it on. Well, you can, but that doesn't work a lot. Mm. Um, After the pandemic, Diamond has had a rough patch, and I know both Marvel and DC have started looking at other distribution methods but the the comic hobby shop is very dependent on the diamond catalog to kind of keep them in touch with what the market is doing it's very difficult to troll through for example kickstarter and and try and find the next big independent comic that mm. way mm. And with all the other things these these guys have to do, I mean they're they own one or two comic shops. they're small business owners. they're you know Ari pulling 60 hours a week to keep the place open. yeah, can you blame them? I mean I don't.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I don't. <laughs> it makes sense. Well, let's swivel because we're getting a little long here. I want to get back to Hexwood a little bit. Was there a, a particular emphasis that made you finally sit down and start working on this thing? And did you ever think about like getting another artist to do it? Or was it always the plan to, uh, since you've always been doodling, was it always the plan to draw it yourself?
1: For Hexwood, uh, the plan was to draw it myself because I wanted, to, I wanted to sit down and actually like draw an entire story start to finish. I have always written stories, and I've always doodled, But and I've even illustrated scenes from stories I've told. In fact, I did a, a novella set in Hexwood's world called Firespinner, uh, which I published on my blog, and then I've illustrated several scenes from that, uh, and then I recorded uh, myself reading the story, and I, I put the illustrations along with it, and I posted it to YouTube. But I, I had never written and illustrated a story beginning to end. And I, when I sat down to write Hexwood, I said, this is going to be the story I do this with. So honestly, no hiring an artist was, was never something I planned on doing just because I wanted the experience of, of drawing the whole thing, start to finish and working out a process for that.
0: Cool.
2: What is the from a writing point of view? How is it? How is writing a comic different than, say, writing your a novella or a short story? What what goes differently into that thought process?
1: Uh, a bunch of things, not all of which I fully considered while I was writing this. First of all, space. <laughs> space. <laughs> there is not a lot of space on that page. Um, <laughs> you think there is. There isn't. (laughs) If you've written a lot of prose, you are going to have to take out not a knife. You're going to have to get out like a butcher's cleaver and chop down all of your dialogue because it's not going to fit. Uh, Not the first time, probably not the second or third time. (laughs) And the, the second thing is timing, which is kind of like space, but different because For example, if you want a two-page spread, guess what? You have to make sure the two pages it falls on are opposite each other in your actual physical book. Otherwise, it's not going to work. (laughs) Guess who didn't do that when he was working on his comic? That would be me. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Whoops. Yes. So, yeah, that's another thing you have to think about, like where your page breaks are going to be. That makes sense. And even... Like, if you're writing for another artist, you may even want to think about where the panel breaks are going to be. I didn't do that so much as I was writing Hexwood because I knew I was going to be drawing it as well. But in the collaboration part, you may even want to get that granular.
2: So you didn't, when when you're doing yours, you didn't think necessarily the individual panels at a time. You wrote kind of a page at a time and figured out how you're going to split it? I started that way, and then okay. I
1: started uh, what's known as the thumbnailing process, which is where you draw stick figures to show where everything's going to be on the okay. page before you draw. And I started doing that, and I was like, "Oh,
2: <laughs> I have problems." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because, I mean, I think that's what I find so fascinating about it. I'm not much of an artist, but the you know, you have to match the writing and the image, and you got to balance what they both inform each other. Right. Yes. In, that's interesting. Yeah
0: one last thing I wanted to mention and maybe we'll, we'll see if we come up with anything else. Walk us through some of the choices you made for your crowdfunding thing. Um, I think it's pretty clear why you would go that route to uh, be able to, to pay for some of all this, but uh, how come Indiegogo versus Kickstarter fixed campaign and composed of flexible, any campaigns you look to as a inspiration?
1: Sure. So Indiegogo versus Kickstarter uh, Indiegogo just offers One huge advantage over Kickstarter, and that is the in-demand store. I don't know how familiar you are with uh, either of those platforms, but at least for the sake of your audience who may not be familiar, when you run a campaign on Kickstarter, you fund for a fixed period of time, which I believe is 30 to 45 days, depending on your kind of campaign and some other factors. Um, And then when you're done, you're done. Kickstarter packages all the money up, takes its cutout and sends you the cash, and you go and you do your thing. Uh, with Indiegogo, you do that process, although your campaign can run for as long as 60 days on Indiegogo as opposed to Kickstarter. Uh, but when you're done, you have the option of converting your campaign into what they call the in-demand store. So people can continue to discover your campaign and come and sign up to it until you actually close that store down. Now, you only, you only get to that point if you meet your, meet your funding goals. But then after that, you can say, well, I'm going to take the next three months to put everything together before I, say, send my comic book to the printer. So for the next three months, people can continue to sign up for your comic book and you continue to make sales that way and get a better projection of what continued demand for your comic or other product is going to be on Indiegogo uh, by using that in-demand option. So... I kind of wanted access to that, so I I went ahead and I went with Indiegogo.
0: Okay. And uh, so, uh, real quick, we've got your Indiegogo going on right now, correct? Yes. Tell us some of your goals for that.
1: Well, my first goal is to obviously fund the comic. So I'm looking to get about $2,500 for that. And then uh, my first stretch goal for that is at $5,000, I'm going to write out a four-page Edition at the back of the book, which I call A Druid's Guide to Magic. So um, the sheriff is a trained druid, so that's one of, you know, the ways they use magic in this world. And um, I'm going to write a brief introduction to how they look at magic and how they use it, and also some some of the kind of philosophy that's behind it to give you an idea of who this character is and how he works, he how he looks at the world that, you know, has more to do with the magic, which is not actually... The mechanics and philosophies of it is not a big focus of the first part of the story. If we get to part two, it will be a big part of that. But being able to put that add-on in would be nice because it could give people an idea of that part of the flavor before it really becomes a major part of the story.
0: Cool. Cool. Any other questions you had, Nick? No, I guess we just make sure everyone knows how to get to this Indiegogo so they can support yeah. it. well, we will put a, a link in it in the show notes, so go check it out. Uh, and you've got some sample pages there, which look, uh, which are pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Um, it's interesting, some of, the, uh, some of your, your style, certain like poses or whatever, kind of remind me of, and I mean this as a compliment, so I hope you take it as one, uh, but do you ever see like the original Dr. Doodle books uh, illustrated by Hugh Lofting? No, no, I don't think I did. Okay, it it kind of reminds some of the like the character design reminds me of. I mean, you're making a, a Western action fantasy setting, and the, these are a lot stories about a genteel British veterinarian. That, so very different style in some ways, but also but I don't know. That's what it, some of the characters made me think of. So okay, hmm. do you have an artistic style that uh, you think your work is most heavily inspired by?
1: Oh gosh, Um, like yeah, Bill Watterson is, I would love to be, look like him in the landscapes because his illustrations of like these fantastic worlds that just seem to spring readily from his mind, I always loved, still love. Character-wise, I strive to render characters as efficiently and as expressively as Naoki Urasawa, who is an amazing, amazing character artist. That said, I don't know if how much of his style you can actually see in mine right now because, you know, there's a light years difference in our skill level, so.
0: Cool, cool. Well, listeners, I hope you go check out that Indiegogo and maybe check out some more indie comics in general. But with that said, let's move on into our soundtrack. New listeners, soundtrack is a segment where we introduce a song that's uh, because listening to music is, is useful for coming up with uh, creative juices. For Nick, has use it for writing several times, all the time, all the time. But uh, Nate, I understand that you had a particular song that uh, you wanted to play on soundtrack today that uh, was inspiration for Hexwood.
1: Yeah, yeah, I listened to this song a lot actually while I was doing some of the basic world building and also drawing because it has a it has that kind of big open space Western kind of feel to it. And of course the, the music itself has a kind of a cowboy ring to it. So this is from the excellent Balance and Ruin album on Overclocked Remixes. And it's called A Fistful of Nickels.
0: Yes, Balance and Ruin. It's an album on Final Fantasy VI music. And let's see. the looks like this one was arranged by Zircon with some accompaniment by Jeff Ball, Jillian Aversa, and Expert Novice. So yes, Fistful of Nickels, this is a fun song. It's a wonderful song. Let's listen. 10 seconds to detonation! Loaded guns, dinosaurs, cruise missiles, towering infernos! C4, femme blood, knives, careening spaceships, more C4! Your favorite films edited, no exposition, no quiet moments, no flashbacks, nothing but! All the adrenaline, none of the boring stuff! Boom! Streaming service, films that bleed available now! I said now.
2: And we're back. Can't go
0: wrong with some shadow theme. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> a song that's about a ninja that's been makes the sound like a western. Yes, sounds all right, which actually sounds pretty accurate for hexwood.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's not that different. You just take a <laughs> whole bunch of everything, put it in a blender and see what comes out.
0: <laughs> <laughs> nice. All right, well for our next segment we're going to go to our take on tales. So for our take on tales, we have a smorgasbord. We're just going to talk about some uh, interesting recommendations for you. Nate, I think it's only appropriate that uh, we hear some more about some of... What are some of your favorite indie comic books that you would recommend to people?
1: There is a publishing group called Iconic Comics. They put out basically three different titles. Well, four different titles, excuse me. So one of them is called Soul Finder which is a comic about an exorcist in the Roman Catholic Church, uh, also an ex-military man. And so he goes, this is like extreme exorcist. (laughs) Um, Sure. And uh, it's it's pretty fun to read. Uh, It's written by a devout Roman Catholic. So he actually touches at points on um, your actual Roman Catholic theology as relates to possession and things like that. Um, which is interesting to read, uh, and I presume is doctrinally sound. His thank you page mentions a couple of priests, so I and huh. he is a journalist for what that's worth these days. Um, I know <laughs> I know he believes in researching a lot though. So Soul Finder is really good. The second title is called Punchline. Punchline is a kind of superhero comic in which a superhero has been forced into retirement, essentially, and been forced to pass her powers on to a successor. And uh, she's kind of in the process of training her successor, who is named Versema. That's an interesting comic, and I'm not sure where it's going. The character writing is very good. The plot is kind of hit and miss. But if you like your superhero tales and you want to read something that's kind of free of the continuity baggage that comes with DC or Marvel, that's a good choice. And then their last two titles are, are kind of tied together as they have the same creative team that alternates in between putting them out. And they are called Common America and Black Hops. Black Hops is about a rabbit <laughs> that, <laughs> that gains near human level intelligence and super speed and strength. Uh, after is it ex- after it is irradiated by um, the bombing of Nagasaki? <laughs> and, <laughs> wow! Yes, awesome. it's it's a bit convoluted, but they 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 make it all work. And then Common America is about a girl named Carly Vanders who is irradiated in the present day by a satellite that's knocked out of orbit, and she gains electrical superpowers. Bigfoot Bill is an interesting comic by a. Artist by the name of Doug Tenaple. Um, He's been working in independent comics for the last 10 years or so, really. Um, He started off actually as an animator. He worked on some Cartoon Network stuff. Uh, He also did video game animation. Um, His most famous character is probably Earthworm Jim, Uh, Mm -hmm. but he has a comic series he's putting out right now called Bigfoot Bill, which I have found to be very, very entertaining and at the same time, weirdly philosophical. The premise is that there's these basically cryptid camps, various places around the nation. They call them crypto zones, and they have like Bigfoot and unicorns and the Loch Ness monster and all these other things locked up there. And one of the Bigfoots by the name of Bill decides he needs to break out and and find his family. So he is a serial prison breaker. Uh, He always gets caught before he can get out until he discovers Poseidon in the basement. (laughs) Okay, and and Poseidon gives he's wearing a kraken like a suit, um, and he loans it to Bill to help Bill break him out of the crypto zone, and Bill and the kraken wind up being buddies uh, because Poseidon does not treat the kraken very well, <laughs> and yeah, so Bill basically goes on the Lamb to try and find the last of the Bigfoots, and it's it's a really fun story about. Like, a lot of stories in mainstream entertainment today are about the importance of found family. You know, you find people and they are your family. Mm-hmm. Well, that definitely happens in Bigfoot Bill. But on the contrary, the message is more that it is very important to, to know your your actual family as well. And Bill has this, this gap in his life that he's trying to sort out. and. Finding his family is a part of that. And it doesn't necessarily mean he's going to like what he finds. In fact, from what I've read of the story so far, I kind of think he's not. But this is something in his life that he has to sort out. And I, I really like that theme in the story.
0: Cool. Yeah, that's an interesting take on, yeah, a common theme nowadays. Yeah, I, I've not read much Doug Tenable. I have always heard great stuff about his work, and I really need to read more of it. He definitely seems to have a unique voice. I used to follow him on Twitter until he... Sometimes I, I will stop following someone on Twitter when they start getting too prolific, <laughs> just because <like, laughs> I don't like having a Twitter feed that's just full of one person. But he, he definitely has an interesting perspective on, on things. <laughs> I mean, I think I believe he is a Christian, but he's, yes. he's one of these Christians that to be in a, in the public sphere he has a, a very tough skin and sometimes <laughs> sometimes, he th- <laughs> sometimes he has to throw that around or at least feels like he does
1: yeah i like doug's creative work but his public persona which I'm, i am 99 percent sure is persona is very <laughs> strange i'm never sure when i'm getting his honest opinion and when he's just trolling and um <laughs> Yeah, I understand. A lot of people find that entertaining, but it's not really my cup of tea. <laughs> right.
0: Fair enough. Okay. Well, Nick, let's take a little bit of break from comics I know uh, you wanted to talk about. You had something to talk about that's not comics. Well, yeah. Most of my reading, as in most of this last year
2: on this podcast, has been stuff for school because I'm teaching middle school and I'm rereading old things.
0: And Tim, did you ever read The Westing Game? I think I did, not in high school. I w- read it at some point, but it's been a while that it's probably faded into fuzzy memory. This How part. about you, Nate? Have you read The Westing Game? doesn't ring a bell. Okay, so I read it uh, probably back in fifth or sixth grade, honestly.
2: I really, really li- like it. I was going to do it with the sixth graders this year. So I reread it. It's a mystery, kind of a humorous mystery novel from, I want to say it was late 70s when it was originally came out okay and it's fabulous there's all these people who are kind of invited to this apartment building to live and they all just live there and then this guy this rich guy who basically started the town sam westing dies and they're all these 16 heirs are brought over they don't know why they're there, half of them they're like i don't even know this guy or they at least they don't admit knowing the guy um and he has this whole game like whoever can figure out this puzzle and who killed me gets 200 million dollars mm-hmm. um and then mm-hmm. it's just and it's very quirky lots of fun characters i mean the one the main care one of the main characters it switches perspectives constantly is turtle wexler it's this like 11 year old girl named turtle or that's her (laughs) nickname okay who likes to kick people in the shins um and she just goes around and harasses people she she plays a stock market and then there's there's this restaurant this chinese restaurant owner who's just grumpy all the time and there's it's a very, it's a very classic sort of mystery with a lot of twists and turns and a g- cool, you know, end reveal and everything. But it there's a reason, at least that, at least in my circles, a lot of people read. You know, it's kind of like that middle school book you read. Mm-hmm. Um, having reread it now, many many years after reading it the first time, and still remembering who did it, that impressed me back in the day. I would say, yeah, it is. If you've not read The Westing
0: Game or not heard about it, it's very enjoyable. It's a pretty quick read. It's like 200 pages. The main thing I remember about it is, is thinking that the uh, the journey was really fun. But... It was a lot of fun.
2: It's a little disorienting for younger readers early on because they introduce like 16 characters like in like three chapters. Uh-huh. Like It's just like, what is going on? But once you get over that, uh, and for older readers, I don't think it'd be, be a big deal. I I just really enjoyed it. Oh, one more thing, I guess I should, I recently finished. I'll just throw in here real quick. So I finally, finally finished Aftermath, the Star Wars novel. Oh, okay. Um, which I had started like months ago and then got sidetracked doing other stuff. And just, I got to do my Star Wars novel update. Early on, I wasn't sure I liked it because it was written this very, pre- I don't, it was written present tense and with all this sort of like immediacy, which I'm kind of old fuddy-duddy and I'm like, why are we in present tense here? <laughs> um, but it ended up being pretty fun. Like I, I got done with it and I'm like, Oh, that was fun. I think I wouldn't mind reading the I think the next one's Life Debt. It's, it takes place right after Return of the Jedi. Mm-hmm. So there, when, when you
0: say the next one, there's like
2: a series of Aftermath a, books? There's three. There's okay. a trilogy okay. that takes place all after Return of the Jedi. Um, there's not really many main characters. I mean, Wedge is in it, but he's not really main character. So you introduce all these new characters. So there's not a lot of... It takes a while to get in, like, do we care about these people? Mm-hmm. These sort of stuff. Probably the best character is Bones, which is a uh, remade um, Federation droid, you know, the Roger Roger droids. Oh, okay. But, that, that, like, this guy reprogrammed, and he's, like, a, this, like, he's kind of a dark, like, he, he wouldn't protect his master, except he'll, like, brutally kill people. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's kind of, <laughs> and he had, like, bones all, like, strapped to him and stuff. Like, he's, it's a very interesting robot character. <laughs> um, but anyways, it was enjoyable for what it was. I mean, no nothing earth-shattering,
0: but if you're looking for a fun Star Wars novel, I did enjoy it. Have you read any of the new Star Wars canon, eight, I have read a few of the Thrawn novels, more because mm-hmm. I
1: follow Timothy Zahn very closely than yeah. anything.
2: Sure. Yeah, I read the first two of those Thrawn novels. No, my brother read all of them that are out. Has he read the newest? He, book? he just got it done, yeah. Okay. He liked that one. He thought it was good. Cool. Cool. I'll have to remember that.
0: Well, I thought for uh, my pick this time, I'd talk about some Superman going from indie comics to a, a classic mainstay of comics. Kim, you don't like Superman, do you? <laughs> I've talked about my love of Superman before on the on the podcast. And, you know, I was inspired, I think I mentioned back in uh, January that I had recently uh, listened to J. Michael Straczynski's autobiography, um, Becoming Superman, which he called that because he pulled a lot of inspiration from The Man of Steel. Because he grew up in a horrible, abusive household, and Superman was the ideal of what a man should be. And so he really patterned a lot of his morality, for better or for worse, off of Superman. So given that, and knowing that he had an opportunity to write for Superman, I got very curious. I was like, okay, so what, what did he do? Now, when he wrote Superman, he was, at least initially... It was kind of similar to what Marvel did with like their ultimate line. The idea DC had was they wanted to make a newly contained separate universe so it didn't have as much baggage as the main DC universe. And this is so this was the Earth One line. And so uh Jake Michael Ziski wrote three volumes of Superman Earth One, and by volumes I made three trade paperbacks. And uh it was it was interesting. It was very J. Michael and, <laughs> He's very distinct. It's talking about creators having a stamp. Yes, although I don't know if I would... I mean, in this case, it felt less like Babylon 5 and more like what I had just been reading about in his book. Okay. He definitely went with the approach of like, okay, I'm introducing Superman to a new group of kids. I want to help them identify with like I identified with them in a way. And so in that sense, he made... This Clark is a very emotionally detached Superman. The idea that, or oh, even an emotionally detached Clark, the idea being that he has had to control his power all his life, and that means also kind of having, tamping down on his own emotions. And, and he also plays with the idea that it leans into his Kryptonian heritage, given the idea that, like, as a Kryptonian, he has an enhanced intellect. So this is not one of your, your kind of dumb, himbo Superman. This is kind of a like super smart, but also like super reserved, which is not an invalid choice for this being kind of a new take on it. But it's not necessarily a Superman that I can really identify with. I'm sure there are people who could identify with this, this take on the character. Certainly also I did appreciate he gave a little bit more love to like the daily planet people like Perry White and Jimmy Olsen than some writers would do. But I think that's part again, Straczynski has a journalistic background, so he, he, he knew how to do those kind of characters well. So yeah, it was, it was interesting. And like I said, some valid choices, just not ones that really appealed to, to me. But, and then after kind of some of this, uh, the whole hoopla over the Snyder cut of the Justice League, which nothing about that really appealed to me. <laughs> I was mm-hmm. like, so Superman's gonna be wearing all black, and like, this looks like it's back in the Snyder, Zack Snyder's practically black and white terms, like eh, again, you're welcome to make your choices, but these, this doesn't sound like what I was looking for and then, plus, I just got kind of mad at like okay, so the original Justice League movie was not great, but it wasn't nearly as bad as suddenly everyone was talking about it being, and that just kind of ticked me off is like, you're just hyping this up because you want to see this other version, which I don't blame you for wanting to see another version of it. But anyway, so I was I was feeling kind of like, uh, if no one's making the, the kind of Superman story I want to see, maybe the problem is me, you know? <laughs> but then I happened to pick up at the library the first couple of volumes of Superman from the Rebirth line, which... The whole idea that DC needed to do an alternate universe is a little redundant when they're constantly rebooting their own universe. <laughs> <laughs> but anyways, the interesting thing about the beginning of Rebirth is that Superman is married to Lois Lane and they have a, like a seven-year-old son, might be more like nine, and they're living out in Kansas. And these are really fun stories. And for me, this was the kind of Superman I wanted to see. It was, it's not like I wanted Superman to constantly be stuck in the same rut that he was for like the fifties. I, I appreciated that he got mar- finally got married to Lois in the nineties, and I was kind of annoyed when they went into the new fifty-two universe and suddenly he was somebody else, and he was like in a relationship with Wonder Woman of all people. So I was glad that you went back to the roots of. That character, I wish it wasn't bogged down with ridiculous DC universe rebooting nonsense, but I, I like that they they're doing something new with, this, with the character. But it's also the guy that I want to see. He's just a genuine, down to earth guy that just happens to be Superman. Uh, <laughs> yep. uh, that he's trying to be a dad, he's trying to be a husband, but they get pulled into crazy comic book plots, and it's fun to see him with their son John Kent. Uh, is very interesting. I think I've talked before about how there was a cool book called Super Sons with him and Batman's son, which is a neat series. So anyway, that just, I'm looking forward to looking more. I know this, this phase of Superman history, I don't think lasted very long. I think this came out in like 2016. And by like 2019, they were already doing something different. They rebooted him again, but Hey, this is a, this is a period of Superman I can enjoy. And, and I realize that this is a character that like, it's sort of like Shakespeare. You can have different flavors of mm-hmm. it. People can do different things and different people are going to take the character in different ways. And and as much as I get annoyed at the whole ridiculous continuity of it all, <laughs> I'm happy there's at least some people that uh, can still make some Superman stories that uh, make me happy, <laughs> if that makes sense. Anyway, I know we, we talked a lot about uh, indie comics. Do you have a favorite uh, superhero of your own, Nate? You know, it's, it's changed
1: a lot uh, over the years. I guess one of them would probably be Max Damage from the series Indestructible, which is a title that was put out by um, Boom Comics. And I just loved that uh, his power was to get stronger and tougher the longer he stayed awake. <laughs>
2: That's awesome. <laughs>
1: um, and there was, there was a lot of great humor that revolved around that. Of those that uh, most people would recognize, it would probably be The Flash.
0: Okay. Barry Allen or Wally West?
1: Wally West for interesting reasons. I, of course, when I read The Flash as a youngster, Wally West was The Flash. But the part that really stood out to me about it was there was this kind of reverence almost for Barry Allen and Jay Garrick in in those Flash comics at that time. Like The Flash was... A legacy that spanned almost a century, and these heroes were building on each other and growing stronger with each generation. And i that really appealed to me. I know that that's kind of been edited out by DC Continuity because... As you yourself have noted, DC continuity edits itself heavily. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But I really liked that aspect of The Flash, especially at that time period.
0: You know, I, I feel very similarly about Green Lantern. I loved Kyle Rayner, and I was interested in the idea of the legacy of Hal Jordan. But once Hal Jordan came back... I love a lot of what Jeff Johns did with the Green Lantern universe, but Hal Jordan is like the least interesting of all the Green the Earth Green Lanterns, to be honest. And I don't i never understood what Jeff Johns' fascination with him was. Huh.
1: Yeah, I'm not familiar with like I've seen the Justice League cartoon. So um Sure. So that that was uh Jon Stewart. Yeah, John Stewart. Um and I've seen the the animated Green Lantern show, which was Hal Jordan, but I'm not really familiar with uh that era of, of the Green Lantern mythos. So I can't comment much
0: on it. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's similar to the Wally West stuff. But anyway, that's a whole tangent. <laughs> that's our uh, recurring listener or our recurring guest, Greg. He and I have talked about sometimes how DC likes to ignore the 90s stuff, even though that was what made us fall in love with DC. But anyway, yeah. well, Nate, thanks for uh, spending some time with us here on Derailed Trains. Yeah, I'm glad you could call in from Hexwood somehow
1: yeah they don't even have telegraphs out here they have semaphore towers can you believe it i have no idea how i'm getting signal <laughs>
0: <laughs> podcasting is a strange strange world but i'm glad you were able to try it out with us sometime obviously we'll we'll put a link for your indiegogo in our show notes also what's the name of your blog site it is natechenpublications.com that's all one word okay and do you have any ongoing stories right now
1: I have just finished a story right now, so I'm I'm working on essays. I hope to about the time um, the Hexwood campaign wraps up, start a new novella called Night Train to Hardwick. So that's something to look forward to.
0: Man, you are uh, you are definitely uh, definitely got the nose to the grindstone thing going on pretty well. It sounds like I I've, I applaud you because I've never been able to pull that off. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Well, um, meanwhile, Nick, where can listeners find our podcast? Everywhere. They can find it at uh,
2: derailedtrainsofthought.blogspot.com, at uh, all the various podcatchers like iTunes
0: and Spotify. Or at least the big ones. (laughs) Yeah, all of them. (laughs) We should be at more probably. And if you want to uh, send us an email, uh, you can always send that to derailedtrains at gmail.com. And, of course, uh, also remember to check out our spinoff podcast, The Weekly Hijack, where we're currently going through Lost. Yes. Season four, as of this release, is where we're in, although we've already been recording season five reactions. So Yes, it would be interesting. Good stuff coming up. Yes, exactly. The episodes get longer. <laughs> yeah, because there, there's a lot to talk about in season five, for sure. All right, Nick, it's your turn for soundtrack. Oh, soundtrack.
2: So... I was like, okay, what, what sort of video games are inspired by comic books, you know? And there's all the com- the normal ones. And then I remembered they have some remix of Lil' Nemo the Dream Master, which was apparently an old school com- I never read the comic.
0: Well, I, I looked this up because I was wondering myself. I think it was a comic strip, though, wasn't it? Well, yes, but Lil' Nemo, this is a video game that's based off an animated movie that's based off the comic strip. Something like that, yeah. So, yes.
2: <laughs> I had this game, actually.
0: Oh, okay. Um, I remember playing it. So I have a
2: nostalgia for the game to a certain extent, even though I never got very far in it, like most of my games back when I was a kid. I was horrible at playing video games. <laughs> um, but regardless, uh, this is called Nightmare King's Dream, remixed by Shane Barber, and it's just kind of an energetic, kind of jazzy, I don't know, I've, I, I remember listening to it ages ago in the clock remix, I found it again, I'm like, oh yeah, this thing, and I was excited. So ho- hopefully someone listening
0: will enjoy it as well. Cool, I'm, I'm sure they will. So, all right. Well, thanks again for listening. We are going to go check out to see if uh, this cow race is up. Oh, yeah. I think it'll be exciting. Up, so hopefully there will be no injuries involved. Nate, we wish you the best with your Indiegogo. And that's, uh, you make it home from Hexwood in one piece. Thank you. <laughs> all right. Thanks again, folks. This has been Tim. This has been Nick. And Nate Chan. Bye-bye.